I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we read the narratives of scripture with an eye out for the lessons that we can apply to our own lives today. After seven weeks of discussing the tabernacle and the things associated with it, and after 11 weeks of instruction with very little narrative in the text of Scripture. After digging through some of the most obscure elements of ancient blueprints and clothing patterns, all recorded in the text. After most of us would have fallen asleep or skipped ahead due to the nature of the last 12 chapters. This week, the text of Exodus returns for a short time to narrative and one of the more iconic stories in all of Scripture. Uh, pun intended there. The story of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai, waiting for Moses to return, and in their impatience, falling into sin. And in the midst of their sin, we receive some amazing insights. For let us not forget that we are still in the midst of Exodus. Shmot, his reputation and character for us to see and to recognize. For his name does not change. His qualities, authority, his character, and his word never fail. And in this chapter, we see this very fact clearly, because so much of what has happened in this chapter is then repeated and extrapolated in many ways throughout the remainder of Scripture. And in each latter instance, when we see the themes of this chapter repeated, we see the qualities of God on display. But there's more going on in this chapter than simply the qualities of God on display. We also find highlighted in this chapter the qualities of humans, our tendency to lean more towards our own hard hearts than to listen to and to obey the words of Hashem. We want to go our own way. We want to be in charge of our own lives. And we want to follow the dictates of our culture. And as we will see, doing this can lead to some very dire consequences. Outcomes that we would all like to avoid. And then sandwiched in between these two, Hashem, the God of creation and the people of Israel, the chosen, hard-hearted people of God, is a messenger, the prophet, the intercessor, the one chosen to lead, but whom the people refuse to listen to. And this one pleads for the people. This one seeks mercy from Hashem. This is the one who's willing to express his own frustrations to God on behalf of the people. And this is the one willing to lay down his life for their good. And then finally, also mixed up in all of this, there is the unspoken priesthood. The ones who were supposed to teach the people the ways of Hashem, and who are supposed to bear His name and represent His desires to the people. Those who are to stop the people when they choose to go their own way. Who are to bear a warning when the people do go their own way. Who are to put their foot down and say, Enough! 
when they make unholy demands. All of these aspects are on display in this Parsha, and the interaction between these four provides for us a fascinating overview of the world throughout the many ages. So let's read this Parsha, and then examine the themes under discussion, and then discover how we can learn from them and apply them to our lives today. Exodus 32.1-33.10 And when the people saw that Moshe was so long in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Arise, make us mighty ones who go before us. For this Moshe, the man whom brought us up out of the land of Mitzrayim, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Take off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And all the people took off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aram. And he took this from their hands and he formed it with an engraving tool and he made a molded calf. And they said, this is your mighty one, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim. And Aaron saw and built an altar before it. And Aaron called out and said, Tomorrow is a festival to Hashem. And they rose early on the next day and offered ascending offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And Hashem said to Moshe, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Mitzrayim have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf, and have bowed themselves to it, and slaughtered to it, and said, This is your mighty one, O Yisrael, who brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim. And Hashem said to Moshe, I have seen this people, and see, it is a stiff-necked people. And now let me alone, that my wrath might burn against them, and I consume them, and I make of you a great nation. But Moshe pleaded with Hashem, his God, and said, Hashem, why does your wrath burn against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Mitzrayim with great power? and with a strong hand. Why should the Mitzrites speak and say, For evil he brought them out to kill the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from the heat of your wrath, and relent from this evil to your people. Remember, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yisrael, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I increase your seed like the stars of the heavens, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And Hashem relented from the evil which he said he would do to his people. And Moshe turned and went down from the mountain, and in his hand were the two tablets of the witness, tablets written on both their sides, written on the one and on the other. And the tablets were the work of Elohim, and the writing was the writing of Elohim engraved on the tablets. And Yehoshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, and he said to Moshe, A noise of battle in the camp! But he said, It is not the sound of those who shout of might, nor is it the sound of those who cry out in weakness, but the sound of singing that I hear. And it came to be as soon as he came near the camp, and he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moshe's displeasure burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf which they had made, and burned it in the fire, and ground it into powder, and scattered it on the face of the water, and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moshe said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Do not let the displeasure of my master burn. You know the people that it is evil. And they said to me, Make us mighty ones who go before us. For this Moshe, the man who brought us out of the land of Mitzrayim, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has gold, let them take it off. And they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and this calf came out. And Moshe saw that the people were let loose, for Aaron had let them loose to their shame among their enemies. And Moshe stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Who is for Hashem? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves to him. 
And he said to them, Thus says Hashem, the God of Israel, Each one put his sword on his side, pass over to and fro from gate to gate in the camp, and each one kill his brother, and each one his friend, and each one his relative. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moshe, and about three thousand men of the people fell that day. And Moshe said, You are ordained for Hashem today, since each one of you has been against his son and his brother so as to bring upon you a blessing today. And it came to be on the next day that Moshe said to the people, You, you have sinned a great sin, and now I am going up to Hashem, if I might atone for your sins. And Moshe returned to Hashem and said, Oh, these people have sinned a great sin and have made for themselves a mighty one of gold. And now, if you would forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book which you have written. And Hashem said to Moshe, Whoever has sinned against me, I blot him out of my book. And now, go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. See, my messenger goes before you, and in the day of my visitation I shall visit their sin upon them. And Hashem plagued the people, because they made the calf which Aaron made. And Hashem said to Moshe, Come, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Mitzrayim, to the land which I swore to Abraham, to Yitzhak, and to Yaakov, saying, To your seed I give it. And I shall send my messengers before you, and I shall drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Chivite, and the Yebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. For I do not go up in your midst, because you are a stiff-necked people, lest I consume you on the way. And when the people heard this evil word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. And Hashem said to Moshe, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I shall consume you. And now take off your ornaments, and I shall know what to do to you. So the children of Israel took off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. And Moshe took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the Tent of Appointment. And it came to be that everyone who sought Hashem went out to the Tent of Appointment, which was outside the camp. And it came to be, whenever Moshe went out to the tent, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moshe until he entered the tent. And it came to be when Moshe entered the tent that the column of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tent, and he spoke with Moshe. And all the people saw the column of cloud standing at the tent door, and all of the people rose and bowed themselves, each one at the door of his tent. Growing up, I read this story, and I was taught this particular story, and had it recounted repeatedly to me. And I was told that this story, it was a story of idolatry. Stupid Israel, they made themselves some calf god to bow down to just after meeting Hashem. How stupid of them to erect an idol to another god after having just met with Hashem. How quickly they left Hashem for this calf. Stupid Israel, picking out a new god after the true god had saved them. It wasn't until after I began reading the Bible seriously that I came to a realization. The story is not primarily about worshipping another god. The story that's being told here is a story of the improper worship of Hashem. It is a story about idolatry. It is about putting up a veil between yourself and God and then worshipping the veil. It is about creating a god and giving it a name, a nature, a character, etc. But then calling that god Hashem. It's about creating God in our own mind after our own thoughts of who God should be and then telling the world that this God that I have made up, well, this is the one true God of creation and the God of Israel. It's worshiping him in ways that are expressly forbidden. 
And boiled down to its most applicable, the story is in essence about syncretism. It's about taking things that are part of the culture and then incorporating them into our worship of Hashem. And as we discover, if we look closely at the Hebrew, the syncretism of this type, it creeps in through a singular factor. What is the doorway to allowing syncretism into our worship communities? It's shame. Now, in verse 1, in most of our English translations, we read that the people saw Moses was delayed in coming down the mountain. Now, if we read the Hebrew, however, we discover that the word translated as delayed is the root, is the word bush. And bush bears the meaning of to put to shame, or to be ashamed, to be disconcerted, or to be disappointed. This is the same root word that's used in Genesis 2.25 when it says that they were both naked, the man and his wife, yet they were not ashamed. Adam and Eve were not bush. They were not ashamed. The people at the base of Mount Sinai were not simply impatient to get on with things. They were actively ashamed. Moses' delay caused them to feel shame. I mean, here they had followed this man out into the wilderness through walls of water. They had stood at the base of a mountain and heard the voice of God. They had put their relationship with Hashem in the hands of this one man. And then he had disappeared up the mountain, gone. No word, he didn't take any food with him, no explanation, no time frame, and when he was going to return, just gone. Down at the base of the mountain, the people are feeling foolish for sitting around simply waiting for Moses. They're feeling in themselves that they're being judged from the world outside, and this wait, well, it only makes them look bad. I mean, how long are they expected to wait before giving up and moving on without this man, Moses? What if he had broken a leg on the way up? No one can go up to see, the clouds blocking them from approaching. What if he died and never comes back? Are they supposed to just wait here forever? For that matter, what if he was killed by simply being too close to Hashem? Their own fears visited them. The reasons that they chose him in the first place, back in chapter 20, when they said, Hashem, speak to him and not to us lest we die. Good thing that we chose to have Hashem speak to him and not to us, otherwise we would all be dead, rather than Moses being dead up on the mountain alone. And now they're feeling the weight of Moses' absence and the lack of any communication from the mountain. And his continued absence brings them shame. If anyone is watching from the outside, they must surely be laughing at us right now. Rather than just sit around and wait for Moses to return, let's make something happen. And so they fall back on something that they know. They know about images. They know about idols and how they work. And they're comfortable and familiar with these things. I mean, this is just the way that things are done in the world. Don't you see that? God wouldn't want his people to look foolish, after all. Because if they look foolish, well, then so does he. This is all for his glory. How easily it gets twisted around into that. And so the people pressure their leaders on the ground into doing what the leadership should know better than to do. They pressure the leadership into just giving a little. And the leadership gives in because they're just as confounded at the state of affairs as everyone else. They don't understand God as they should either. And so a golden calf is created. Not an affront to God exactly, but to provide comfort to the people. To ease their worship of God by providing something tangible that they can look at and feel at ease around. Just a little bit of culture mixed into the worship to make them comfortable 
to make them feel at ease. Now at least those looking in will see their image and understand what they're doing. They, the nations, they will understand what's going on with those Hebrews out in the wilderness. Just a dab of our surrounding culture, just a dab of something that we're familiar with, so that we don't look like idiots to everyone else just waiting around for this Moses guy to get back. Now this is a trap that is all too easy to fall into, and we must be aware of things of this nature when they attempt to pressure us through shame into taking on the ways of the surrounding culture. Well, while Israel is engaged in this drama of attempting to deal with their own shame, the scene shifts at the top of the mountain. Because Hashem, he is not happy. The instructions that he had given, they were clear. And the covenant that he had cut with the people was already null and void. They had failed to live up to the standards of relationship that he had set for them. And so Hashem seeks for the sake of his own honor to destroy the people of Israel because they have actively shamed themselves. The people are giving the world the wrong idea of who he is. They're not only making a graven image, they're taking his name in vain. They're demonstrating his reputation and character to the world in a false way. And so Hashem asks Moses to leave him so that he can destroy these people. And Moses, like Abraham, with Hashem before Sodom, he speaks up and he pleads for the people. And just like Abraham, Moses leverages Hashem's reputation towards the salvation of the people of Israel. In Genesis 18:23-25, it says, And Abraham drew near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wrong? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to act in this way, to slay the righteous with the wrong, so that the righteous should be as the wrong. Far be it from you. Does the judge of all the earth not do right? In that passage, Abraham is pleading according to God's nature, according to his name, not to act in this way. For a God of justice to act in injustice by destroying the innocent alongside the guilty would be for God himself to pervert his nature. Well, in the same way, Moses makes this plea based on Hashem's reputation and an appeal to his covenant. This, too, is an appeal to the name of Hashem in Exodus 32, 12-13, when he says, Why should the Egyptians speak and say, For evil he has brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from the heat of your wrath and relent from this evil to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I increase your seed like the stars of the heavens, and all this land that I have spoken I give to your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses is in essence saying, if you do this, you will be perverting your own covenant. You will give the nations the idea that you brought Israel out here to kill them all along. That you can't be trusted. And if you do this, you'll prove them right. That Israel was cursed from the beginning. You swore a covenant to our forefathers. For the sake of that covenant, you cannot do this. For the sake of your name and your reputation and your honor, you cannot do this to Israel. And it's with this plea Hashem relents. Not for the sake of the people who have transgressed his covenant, but for his own honor, his own name, his own reputation's sake. 
Now when Moses returns to the people, he is angry, understandably so. He is upset that they broke the covenant. They just cut this covenant and it's broken already. The sacred agreement between them and Hashem, it's useless. And so it's a very real symbol that the covenant had been broken. Moses breaks the tablets with the words of the covenant on their faces. He's not having a fit of anger and the tablets are simply the closest thing at hand for him to destroy. Moses is using the tablets as an object lesson to the people that they can understand. This is the result of what you've done with this calf. And then he grinds up the calf and he makes the people drink the water. Now why would Moses do this? Well, to understand this, we have to go back to a command that they all broke by making the calf in the first place. Exodus 20, verses 4-5 through 5. You do not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness, that which is in the heaven above, or that which is in the earth beneath, or that which is in the waters under the earth. You do not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, Hashem, your Elohim, am a jealous God, visiting the crookedness of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Hashem is a jealous God. And what is the prescription for a wife when a spirit of jealousy moves her husband? We read of it in Numbers 5, verse 14. And a spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself. For a spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself. There is a ceremony that's to be going through. And later on in that chapter, Numbers 5, in verses 23-22, it says, but if you have turned aside under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall make the woman swear with an oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, Hashem make you a curse and an oath among your people, when Hashem makes your thigh waste away and your belly swell. And this water that causes the curse shall go into your inward parts, and make your belly swell and your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Moses is putting the people through the water trial for a woman suspected of adultery. And in verse 35, a plagues break out among the people because of this sin. The result of the water trial taking effect on those guilty of adultery. I, I mean, idolatry. In scripture, when it comes to God, they're the same thing. So when Moses asks Aaron why he would make the idol, Aaron makes an excuse. And a poor excuse at that. Now, the point here is not that the excuse that was offered, although we could learn a lot from Aaron's excuse of what not to do when confronted with our own sin, as it is the usual pattern of shifting blame that we see from the very beginning with Adam and Eve when they were confronted with their sin. Instead, I find the highlight of this verse to be found in the next verse. Verse 25. The people had been let loose. Aaron had let them loose. And now, they truly have found shame among their enemies. In the beginning of this chapter, the people had perceived shame. What must everyone think about us just sitting around waiting for Moses to return? We must look foolish to them, and so we're going to do something to make ourselves more acceptable in their eyes. And so they went to Aaron, and Aaron allowed the people to rule him. Those who were to be under Aaron's authority turned and made themselves the authority over him. And the people were let loose from the God-appointed authority when the authority followed the people, when the cart pulled the horse. And the people went after the mob and perverted justice. 
Now, the word used here that's translated as let loose is the word para. Uh, in its root form, it means to lead, but in the form used here, it means to be without leadership or to be wild or free of restraint. The people disregarded their authority and became the authority over the leadership. As Judges says, there was no king in those days, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And Moses draws a proverbial line in the sand at this point. He declares, who is for Hashem? Come to me. He declares this, and the Levites answer the call. And he gives them the charge of defending the honor of Hashem in the camp. Put on your swords and go through the camp and kill even your relatives if they are found among those who have transgressed the covenant of Hashem. This is a case of what might be considered honor killing found in the Bible. Now we hear stories of people in other countries who will kill a family member who has brought shame upon the family. The idea is to remove those who have shamed you from your midst so that their shame does not reflect upon you, and then you can either retain or regain your own honor by getting rid of them. I think this is what's happening here. Levi cleanses their own family of the transgressors. They kill all of those in their own tribe and their own family who have brought shame upon Hashem by participating in this travesty. And they do. And they are rewarded for their action. They were willing to defend the honor of Hashem when the call came. And so now, they are going to be consecrated to Hashem. They are going to be filled up. Now, back in Exodus 13, verse 2, Hashem told Israel to sanctify every firstborn, to set them apart for service to him. And now here we find that the Levites are to be ordained for Hashem. Two different words, but similar meanings. In Exodus 13:2, we read that the firstborn were to be Kadesh, sanctified to Hashem, and they were to be ransomed because otherwise they would die. In Egypt, the firstborn were the default family priests. They had the duties of leading the worship practices. Each firstborn was the priest for his family. And so when God commands that they be sanctified to him, it makes sense. They are to remain priests. But rather than being priests of their own household gods, now they were to be priests for Hashem. And they failed in their duties. They did not act as priests to prevent the people from making or worshiping at the golden calf. And so now the Levites are to be consecrated. Now this is the same word used back in chapter 29 for the process that the priests were to go through. And in Numbers 3, we'll read of this process of exchange that occurs as the consecration amount for the firstborn is applied to the Levites and an exchange is made. The Levites are elevated to the role of priest over the firstborn. But in two chapters, we will read that the redemption order of for the firstborn still stands. The command to sanctify the firstborn has not changed. Rather, the role of priest has been transferred from them to the Levites. Numbers chapter 3, verse 45 through 46. Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel and the livestock of the Levites instead of their livestock. And the Levites shall be mine. I am Hashem. And for the ransom of the 273 firstborn of the children of Israel who are more than the number of the Levites. The ransom of the firstborn was applied to the Levites as they replaced the firstborn as the ones sanctified to Hashem, and then as they were consecrated to serve him. Now just after this, once again, Moses makes intercession for Israel. 
He begs God to forgive the sins of Israel. As it stands, Israel is no longer under covenant to Hashem. They are alone. And Moses asks Hashem to take them back again. Moses, in essence, says, if you won't forgive your people, then you might as well blot me out. Moses is saying one of two things here. He's saying, if you're a God incapable of forgiveness of transgression, then either, one, I don't want to serve you, or two, I am incapable of maintaining your standard in order to serve you. It could be one of those two things, or potentially another that I haven't thought of. But into this, God assures Moses. He says, I will hold the sinful responsible for their own sin. In an honor-shame culture, the community stood and fell together. For only those who were guilty to pay, it would have been a somewhat of a new idea to them. And so in response to the shame that the people had brought to Hashem, he returns the shame back to them. The people, in their own recognition of the shame, they don't put on their ornaments or their jewelry, the items of honor that they wore, the items that they used to create the thing that had brought such shame upon them. And Hashem has Moses move his tent outside of the camp. No longer is the presence of Hashem in their midst. He is outside the camp, and Moses is with him. The people recognize that they are being shamed, that their entire community now gives Moses great honor by standing in the doorway of their tents as he passes by. In the place of household worship that they were familiar with, the threshold was the family altar. And so the men stood at that place as Moses passed through the camp. They recognize him as the man of honor, and so they give him great honor as he passes. The cloud that signified the presence of Hashem descended on Moses' tent while he was still there. And now anyone who wished to seek the will of Hashem in any situation had to leave behind the camp of people and go to the camp of one tent. The camp of God, which was outside of their own camp. The people had shamed God and broken his covenants, and now they are being shamed in response. And that's where this Parsha ends. Well, now I want to take a moment to discuss something that's hidden in this chapter that we find represented in the New Testament and another passage that often gets misunderstood. Uh, in my opinion, even understood, misunderstood by biblical scholars. And the key to discovering this shadow is located once again in examining the passage through a symbolic lens. So we have Moses at the top of the mountain, in the place of God, and he has left a priesthood behind on the ground to minister to the people in his absence. Now, while he is gone and delayed from coming back, the people in their shame, in their impatience for his return, with the question of, what's keeping him so long? They begin to look to the world around them. The absence of their Savior is causing many of them to feel ashamed. I mean, they've been warning for ages that he will return at any moment, and yet he delays, and he delays, and he delays, and the people, they grow anxious. And so they go to their priests, their Levites, their pastors, those who have been tasked with overseeing their worship practices, and they demand that the worship of Hashem it look more like the culture around them, so that we are not ashamed to be here. And golden calves are erected within the worship practices. Things are lifted up to give comfort to the people. Corners are cut. Things that were forbidden to be allowed, uh, sin gets a foothold in the community. And the excuse is made that, well, we're trying to worship God in our own way. This is the way of worship that's comfortable to me. 
this is the way that I grew up with, or this is the way that is popular. The times are changing, don't you know? we got to remain relevant to the culture. We have to make changes to appeal to them and to draw them in. We need to relax the rules a bit so that we're seeker-friendly. And the leadership goes along with these things and stand before their people and before their own personal versions of Hashem and declare, oh, This is Hashem. This is the God who redeemed you. This is a festival to Him, the new way to acknowledge Him and to show Him your love. Rejoice, you people, and celebrate, for now you have a way of relating to God that you understand. Fortunately for the people on the ground, the leaders in the heavens making intercession on their behalf, asking God not to forsake them, not for their own good or because they are righteous or worthy, but for the sake of his name. And when that one returns, he is angry. He rebukes the religious system repeatedly and teaches against them. And he offers to die on their behalf for the forgiveness of sins. And yet God continues to hold responsible those who have sinned against him individually. And he removes his presence from their camp and causes the people to live in shame until the time that they begin to honor him again. Now, the symbolism that I used here is directed primarily at the modern church, but it's a state of affairs that's applicable at multiple times in history, even outside of the modern church. And the first time that we see this pattern clearly is in the kingdom of Israel, that northern kingdom that was first ruled over by Jeroboam. When Jeroboam was appointed as king in northern Israel in 1 Kings, he changed the worship practices of Israel by creating temples in Bethel and Dan and setting up golden calves in those places and instituting a new form of Hashem worship in those places. Now this was done for the sake of political expedience, in order to keep a distance between the tribes of Israel. And this sin became known as a byword throughout the books of the kings as the sin of Jeroboam this continued worship of Hashem before golden calves. In this case, the priesthood failed because Jeroboam instituted his own priesthood to serve, men who were not of the house of Levi. 1 Kings 12, 26-32 And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom shall return to the house of David. If these people go up and do sacrifices at the house of Hashem at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people shall turn back to their master, Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go back to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. So the king took counsel, and he made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. See your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this matter became a sin, for the people went before the one as far as Dan. And he made the house of high places, and made the priests from all sorts of people who were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam performed the festival of the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the festival of Judah, and he offered sacrifices. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing the calves that he had made at Bethel, and he appointed the priests of the high priests which he had made. This sin, it led to the nation of Israel being led into captivity 150 years earlier than their sister nation of Judah to the south an exile which has not yet been reversed in the course of human history in a literal sense. The case could be made that this return from exile began with Yeshua. I'm not going to get into that today. 
In the nation of Judah, however, similar things were happening, albeit they were at a slower pace. The syncretism was still taking hold, and the worship of Hashem began to be combined with the worship of other gods and goddesses. Ezekiel chapter 8 recounts some of this for us in verses 14 through 16. And he brought me to the door of the north gate of the house of Hashem, and I saw women sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You are still to see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of Hashem, and there at the door of the temple of Hashem, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs towards the temple of Hashem, and their faces towards the east, and they were bowing themselves eastward to the sun. And the syncretism, the addition of things from the culture into the worship practices, came about because of a failure in leadership and in the priesthood, as it was them who allowed these abominations to enter into the worship of Hashem. And because of these, many died, and they were all shamed, and the presence of Hashem was removed from the midst of the people as they were sent into exile. And the cycle of the golden calf continued. Well, after this, Judah is restored to the land, and things are going well as far as worship is concerned for some time. But things happen, and by the first century, the priesthood has failed once again. The high priest is no longer a son of Aaron, Phineas, or even Zadok. In fact, he's not even a Levite. The high priest was a lackey who had been appointed by Rome, a Sadducee who had curried favor with the local Roman governor. Caiaphas was appointed in 18 CE by Valerius Gratus, the Roman governor of the time, and five of his sons and a son-in-law also served as high priest after Caiaphas was removed from his office in 37 CE by a Syrian governor, Lucius Vitellius. The priesthood failed at keeping the worship of Hashem pure. Worship in the temple became less about actual worship and more about currying favor with Rome and allowing their influence. It became about presenting oneself before the altar to be seen for the purpose of personal honor. The temple became a place of money changers and legitimized thieves, as we see in the story of Yeshua taking the whip to the money changers in the temple. And so with all of this going on, what is the response of God? What happens because of the failed priesthood? Something that happens only here in Exodus. A change in the priesthood is instituted. Hebrews 8, 1 through 8 says it this way. Now this is the summary of what we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the greatness in the heavens and who serves in the holy place and of the tent which Hashem sets up and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it was also necessary for this one to have something to offer. For if indeed he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the Torah, who serve as a shadow and a copy of the heavenly. As Moses was warned when he was about to make the tent, for he said, See that you make all according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent service, inasmuch as he is a also mediator of a better covenant, which was constituted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, See, the days are coming, says Hashem, when I shall conclude with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah a renewed covenant. Now in nearly every translation, it says in verse 7 that the first covenant had been faultless. But if you look closely in most translations, words were added by the translators, and they are in italics. 
The word covenant in verse 7 is in italics. It doesn't exist in the original Greek. You can just as easily cross that word out of this verse. It is a word that was added in order to offer clarity. And in the end, it's only caused confusion. Bible interpreters wanted to try to create clarity in a verse that they found confusing. Now why? Why did they add the word covenant here? Well, because the decision had already been made in the early church that certain things from the culture, such as holidays, food laws, they're permissible as part of Hashem worship. And so they created a way to have the previous covenant be what was faulty. But rather, let's read this passage in context and discover what is the topic under discussion here. It's not the covenant that was faulty, but the priesthood that was faulty. It wasn't the covenant that failed the people. It was the priesthood and the leadership and the people that failed the covenant. And we can know this because in verse 8 it says, For finding fault with them, not finding fault with it. The covenant was not at fault. The people were at fault. Just as here on Mount Sinai, it was not the covenant that was at fault that led to this change in priesthood. It was the priesthood that was at fault that led to the need for a new priesthood. It was the priesthood who allowed the culture to enter into and to influence the worship of Hashem. And if we continue reading in Hebrews, we discover that the author is quoting the prophet Jeremiah through the remainder of the chapter. And while Jeremiah speaks of the renewed covenant in this passage, the new covenant is characterized in one particular way. Hebrews 8, 10-11 Because this is the covenant that I shall make with the house of Israel after those days, says Hashem, giving my laws into their mind, and I shall write them on their hearts, and I shall be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall by no means teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, No, Hashem because they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. This new covenant is not characterized by a new law or a new set of instructions. Rather, it's characterized by a new way of knowing God. The Torah that was written on tablets, that's written in words, that's written on scrolls and on paper, will now be written in our minds and in our hearts. We'll no longer need a priesthood to say, No, Hashem! We can all know Hashem through our own personal relationship with Him. And at this time, the presence of Hashem, the temple, was removed from the camp of Israel, and a new priesthood was instituted. A spiritual priesthood for a spiritual temple with a high priest in the heavenlies, in the heavenly places making intercession for us. And this is where we are today. The priesthood has been replaced. It's been replaced by us. We are becoming the royal priesthood. We are now charged with the task of teaching the ways of Hashem. It's our task to accurately represent Him to the nations. But our Messiah, He's been gone such a long time. Where is He? What's happened to Him? And many have begun to feel the shame from the nations at His delay in returning. Where is He? And so in order to become more comfortable, Things have been introduced into worship from the culture at large. Acceptance and allowance of sin in the church has not just been allowed. In some corners, it's being celebrated. Idols have been erected for people to fall down and to worship at. Sins are being overlooked and excused away. The walls of worship that separate the people of Hashem from the world are being torn down. And a false god is being erected and people are being pointed to it and told, This is the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt.
syncretism is taking over in many corners. In some circles, it has already taken over. It's on us to ensure that we don't create golden calves of our own and set them up to be worshipped while calling them Hashem the entire time. Because setting up anything else as God is the way of death. But the way of life, as we dare is to learn who Hashem is and then to allow Him only to be God in our lives. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.